Our first reading this evening is from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Continuing the reading from James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral, moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, 
but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. According to the Financial Times this weekend, money can make you happier after all. Research from the Office of National Statistics suggests that wealthy people in the UK are happier, less anxious and have a greater sense of worth. Though the paper also notes that owning physical assets such as yachts and expensive cars doesn't increase well-being. Wealth just provides a cushion against hardship and difficulty. If you're up against it, it's easy to feel vulnerable and correspondingly anxious. Though wealthy people may not necessarily be happier than poor people, there is no denying that wealthier people generally feel safer. Having plenty of money in the bank means that you're okay, relatively speaking, when things go wrong as they do. If a domestic appliance breaks down and you can afford simply to repair or replace it without a second thought, it will cause a degree of inconvenience and annoyance, but nothing more than that. If a domestic appliance breaks down and you don't have any money, suddenly you're facing a bit of a crisis. And the sense of vulnerability increases exponentially in direct proportion to the magnitude of what goes wrong. A car failing its MOT drastically is considerably worse. Losing your job is worse again. These things can and do happen to anyone. But when something goes wrong for someone who doesn't have solid financial backing behind them, the impact is far, far harder to absorb. James is a letter written where the gap between rich and poor that people talk about in our society was far, far wider in that context and was felt far more keenly than it is today. And where some of the trials and tribulations that Christians were facing could be directly attributed to the poverty in which they lived. One of the ways of discrimination that Christians were faced in those days was they were kind of pushed out of the mainstream of society. Uh, Sometimes they were discriminated against when it came to jobs. People tended not to buy stuff from Christian shops. Uh, And so they were economically vulnerable because of their faith. You might have read this weekend about a a a very, very bright girl in Egypt who was top of her class who received naught mark in all of the tests that she took. Uh, And the suspicion is that she was discriminated against because she was a Christian. Um, The test papers that were marked in her name, someone had simply written out all the questions again. And on appeal, the marks were upheld, but it's going higher than that. It's that kind of discrimination that Christians have faced down the ages, and in those days it was no difference. They were economically marginalised because they were discriminated against on, on the basis of their faith. So the various admonitions and encouragements that James issues in his letter are designed to enable hard-up Christians on the margins of society who are vulnerable to make sense of what is happening to them and to cope with it. 
Not everything he says is easy for us to relate to. Sometimes that will be because we lead relatively comfortable lives and what he says about rich and poor might unsettle us because we find ourselves actually on the wealthy end of society, in which case it's probably right that his remarks should unsettle us. Others of us might find ourselves in difficult situations and we find that actually I can't quite get a handle on what James says here either. And that's okay because James isn't writing directly to you in your situation as a 21st century Western believer in Christ. He's writing for a completely different audience in a completely different context. And so we shouldn't be surprised perhaps if not everything he says applies directly to us. Nevertheless, his words were inspired by the Holy Spirit and God wants to take his words and speak to us through them. And we can derive benefits from a prayerful consideration of what James has to say and an attempt to discern how that applies to our lives. Now, James was not a Marxist. There's no grand scheme here for the redistribution of wealth from each according to their need, from each according to their ability, and given to each according to their need. Rather, he addresses rich and poor in their respective social contexts and addresses warnings and encouragements respectively to them, commensurate with their position in society and in God's kingdom. So verses 9 to 10, he contrasts those who live in humble circumstances who, he says, paradoxically, should take pride in their high position in the sight of God, with those who are rich, who, he says, paradoxically, again, should take pride in their low position, because they will pass away like a wild flower that is scorched by the sun. For all his wealth, the rich man remains 100% mortal, and however much he keeps himself busy, it's inevitable that the day will come when his life will fade away. But the contrast between those who are rich and those who are vulnerable and humble is central to what James has to say in this letter. There is no basis for the rich to feel any sense of pride about their status because before God, they have none. And James doesn't say, you've got to give away what you have. But he does say, actually, you need to be humble before God. Because whereas in society you may have everything going for you, in the sight of God that doesn't count for anything. You have no business looking down or discriminating against poor people. Because those who are humble, those who are at the bottom of the pile, are actually exalted in God's sight. So the kingdom brings about a parity. In society, the richer up there, the poor down here, in God's kingdom, James says, that status is reversed. So if you're humble, don't let anybody look down on you because you are exalted in the sight of God. If you've got everything going for you in society, make sure that you don't take pride over others because before God, you are low down in his eyes. But how do poor people cope with the trials of everyday life? It's very well saying, actually, in God's sight, you're up there when you're still struggling with real issues every single day. James has plenty to say about that. But the key thing to bear in mind is that he doesn't want people to think that, ah, if I won the lottery, or if I got plenty of money, if I became rich myself, that would be the solution to all my problems. James doesn't go down that road, probably for a number of different reasons. Firstly, in the society in which James was writing, there was zero chance of any upward mobility. You were just born into a social station pretty much you died in the same social station. There was no kind of move up the ladder possible for people. 
So the idea of a poor man becoming rich was nothing more than a damaging illusion. There was no, not going to be any lottery win. There was not going to be any Marxist revolution putting everybody on the same level. There was not going to be any hand up the ladder to a poor person. You were where you were and there was nothing you could do about it. How do you cope then in that kind of situation? Secondly, for James, wealth actually causes more problems than it solves in terms of people standing in the sight of God. Thirdly, he recognises that desire to want what other people have got can be corrosive and destructive. The voice that goes on and on and on in your mind saying, I want this, I want that, I want the other, that is not the voice of God. God himself is above and beyond temptation. He doesn't lead people into that kind of temptation. James plots out a sequence of cause and effect and he charts how desire covetousness and greed these things entice us into yielding to seductive temptation and when that happens the initial desire conceives and gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death wrong desires indulged lead to death the thing you need to do is to get your priorities right and recognize what godly desires are in your situation and in your context He's not denying that the people to whom he's writing are really in want. They lacked all sorts of things. But nothing good would come out of wanting and desiring stuff they had no hope either of possessing or attaining and he thinks actually won't be good for them anyway. Now we live in a society where upward mobility is encouraged and to some extent enabled. We live in a very different culture from the one to which James was writing. But we need to recognise that that upward mobility is encouraged first and foremost by the creation of desire for bigger and better things. Bigger, better, faster cars, bigger, better, faster computers, bigger, better houses, more expensive holidays. The whole thing is driven to, to, to give us the desire to spend more money and to go out and work harder so that we have more money to spend. The whole thing is desire-driven. The ceiling against which people bump their heads when they try and move up the social ladder is called a glass ceiling, not just because it's a ceiling that's invisible to them at first, but also because they can look through it and see where everybody else is headed. All the other people kind of heading up the social ladder and they want to make progress the same kind of way. The consumerism that that drives Western economy is founded on the principle of the gospel of consumption, the never-ending creation of new things that people are given the desire to want so that we never reach the point where we are content and satisfied and think, that's it, I've got everything I could ever want, everything I could ever need. There always has to be something else that's worth spending your money on. And the resultant problem is that unless you consciously dig your heels in against the pull of consumerism, the more you have, the more you want, and you can end up becoming ever more selfish. We need to be on our guard against that. James is writing to people who says, you know, there's no point in wanting all these things because you can't have them. We can have them, but actually the results of giving in to those desires and indulging them can still be destructive for us as people as well. James warns his readers and seeks to turn them aside from venturing down the path of ever-increasing acquisition, of wanting more and more material prosperity. Instead, 
in this chapter, he mentions a whole host of things that are God's gifts to his people. Things that we should set our hearts on. Things that we should value and treasure. Things that we should make the top of our priority list. And so it is that whatever financial level we occupy or would like to occupy, we would do well to take on board what James says here. And his first point to readers who are up against it and find it a struggle to make ends meet is that you should count it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. That is a bit of a controversial note to start a letter on. Normally you start by kind of building common ground with your readers and saying, yes, you know, we, we can agree on this, this and this. All of this is controversial and straight. Straight in with actually a really striking and challenging and disconcerting saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, trace, when you face trials of various kinds. Something goes wrong, it's a joy to you. The point he's making is that trials serve to test our faith. When our faith is tested, we learn perseverance. When perseverance has finished its work, we end up being mature and complete as individuals. And as such, as mature and complete individuals, you don't lack anything, he says. That's a different way of looking at it. If life is hard and things are going wrong and it's a struggle... Actually, look for the joy in that. Look for the silver lining in that. Look for the potential in that. Look for the good thing that brings to you. Facing, overcoming adversity, giving you perseverance and making you mature and complete as an individual so that you don't lack anything. Because, actually, the kind of person that you are is immeasurably more important than the level of income and the amount that you possess. And logically, you can see the sense in that. It's hard to take on board when you're up against it and a few more pounds in the bank would make a world of difference, but it's true, nevertheless. The kind of person that you are is more important than the level of income that you have. If all you have when something goes wrong, if all you have to do when something goes wrong is write a cheque, then you will have a trouble-free life. But there is a corresponding desire that you can end up being relatively inadequate as a person. Because it is through encountering and overcoming adversity that you attain maturity and wholeness, lacking nothing of what you need because you have the inner resources to cope with the situations that you encounter. The idea of adversity being character building is often banded around these days. It has its roots, actually, in the kind of stuff that James says here. And there's truth in that for us all. It may be that James actually senses that his readers won't necessarily agree with him, because having said, actually, if stuff goes wrong, it's a joy to you, his next thing is, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. I wonder if he's saying, actually, if you don't agree with me, just ask God and let him give you the wisdom to see that what I'm saying is absolutely right. You'll need wisdom to take on board the truth of what James says here. As you will need wisdom to negotiate the various trials that come your way and to do so with joy. But that's okay, says James, because wisdom is God's gift. And if you ask him for that, he will give to you generously and without finding fault, so long as you ask in faith and don't doubt him. We see that's a little bit double-edged, really. God gives generously to everybody without finding fault, so long as actually you have complete faith and confidence in him. 
But you can't afford to waver in your allegiance to God because if you are in two minds about your faith, you will end up all over the place. You will be about as stable as a wave in the middle of the ocean when a strong wind is blowing. Trusting God is making him the source of your stability, the bedrock of your life. Keeping him as the sole object of your faith enables you to find in him the wisdom that you need to negotiate life's trials and have a better life and be a better person for it. Far better to have humility and wisdom than to have stupidity and wealth. And again, you see the sense in that. Some of us would rather have the wealth and the wisdom. But the point is true. Better to have humility and wisdom than stupidity and wealth. And if you persevere under trial, then at the end, James says, when you stood the test, you will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So at the end, it will all have been worthwhile. Look at the longer picture here. Look beyond next week, next month, next year, to the ultimate goal to which we are headed. Because God is preparing us for eternity. That's his long-term objective. And when you come through the trials and the difficulties and you find the wisdom to count them joy and you find the perseverance and character development and maturity and wholeness, ultimately the goal is that God gives you the crown of life that he's promised to those who love him. And then it will be worth it. When we put our faith in God, we find that he's rock solid. He's not like shadows that shift around and come and go. God is the same yesterday, today and forever and he's the source of every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. He's the one we need to trust to supply what we need to get us through trials when they come our way. One way or another, he's committed to bringing you through either by supplying what you need in the end or by giving you the inner resources to cope without it. We have a choice, you see, we can trust God or not. If we don't trust God, what alternative is there open to us? One natural and all too human response is to become angry, angry at your situation, angry at your inability to do anything about it, angry at the injustice of it, angry at those who have more than you and have have better lives than you and don't deserve them, angry at the way in which you are a victim of inequality. One of the reasons why disadvantaged people feel angry is because they are helpless to do anything about it. And that surfaces in anger and and sometimes in violence and often in hatred. It's a natural human response to powerlessness and helplessness and vulnerability. But James warns that human anger doesn't bring about God's righteousness. It is destructive. It doesn't bring goodness doesn't make a positive difference. It's destructive of you and of others. To succumb to anger is to cross over the line and become as bad as the people, become as bad as those to whom your anger is directed. If all we want are the luxuries that we see other people enjoying, then we can end up setting our hearts on stuff that really amount to nothing more than decadent extravagance. James doesn't want his readers going down that road. Don't set your heart on overindulgence, he said. Instead, humbly accept God's word that he plants within your souls, which has the power to save you. Hear what God says. Put it into practice. Look at God's word and let it become a mirror for your soul so that you can see yourself as you really are, not the person you wish you were, 
or the person you would have liked to be if the cards had been stacked differently. Look into God's word. Figure out what God is telling you to do right now, the person that you are now in the situation in which you find yourself now, and put it into practice. Don't dream about how things might have been different. Don't dream about how one day things will be all right. Right here, right now, in this wrong situation, God is speaking to you. What is he saying? What does he want you to do? And if you can't figure out what God is saying to you specifically, then James gives them a bit of a clue, because the kind of religion that God values is the kind of religion that stops complaining and grumbling and gets on with looking after widows and orphans in their distress. And keep yourself clean from all the muck and dirt that there is in the world. We are called not to envy those who have more than us, but to be there for those who have less than us. That's God's way of living. That's our calling. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's a perspective that has direct relevance as we consider the problems of migrants entering Europe. It is a matter of looking around at what everybody else is setting their heart on and getting and saying, actually, God has other priorities for me. In the company of my brothers and sisters, I'm going to be different. James said that God made us, God made you, to be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And the first fruits were that portion of the harvest that was set apart and dedicated to God. And that is what we are. Out of all the world, we are the bit of humanity that's been set apart and dedicated to God as his chosen and treasured possession. That's our calling, to be the bit of creation that puts God first. To be his obedient, committed, faithful people. That should be our priority. Seek first the kingdom of God, said Jesus, and his righteousness. Everything else will be added to you. Everything else takes its rightful place under that priority. What does that mean for us in practice? Whatever our situation, whatever we find ourselves in, whatever our wants and desires are, whatever we find ourselves envying in other people. The hymn, Trust and Obey, sums up what James says in his letter, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trust him. Put him first. Make living for him your priority. Allow him to shape and mould you into the person he wants you to be. You may not have what you wish you had, what you see so many other people having, but God has you. And there's nothing more important than that. Let's pray. Lord, all the time we are driven to compare ourselves with others. All the time we are indoctrinated by advertising to think of all the things that we could have. All the things that we ought to want, to desire, to possess. And we are 
living in a culture where it's easy to be rich in things and poor in soul. Lord, you have different priorities. Because we are infinitely more valuable to you than any amount of material things. You are shaping and moulding and crafting us to be a people dedicated to you, people who belong to you. Lord, we place ourselves in your hands with our situations, with our needs and our wants and our lacks. You know what we're up against. Enable us to trust you. Enable us to find your presence with us. May that knowledge be the silver lining that enables us to find joy even in difficulty. Give us perseverance the ability to keep going when life is hard. Bring us to that point of maturity where we find ourselves complete as people in our dependence upon you. Keep us going until we find the crown of life. rather than being people who envy others, who have more than we've got. Enable us to be people who are there for those who have less than us. In Jesus' name.